to John chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 30 today. History, Christian history, is it's well, well documented if you just start to read some of the 18th century missionary biographies or autobiographies, uh, that some of the missionaries that we sent overseas were killed. Uh, and some that went to certain parts of the globe, as grisly as that might sound, uh, when they went into some of these villages, they found that these people groups were cannibals. One such missionary who went to Uganda back in the uh, mid to late 1800s was Bishop Hannington. And Bishop Hannington ended up being devoured by that people group there. His two sons, however, and amazingly, went and took his place. They went back there. Eventually, the men that actually ate his father were baptized and confessed Christ. What was it that made such a difference to them, to those men? What was it that, that, that impressed that, those, that people group in Africa so much that later they were even open to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, they, they told Hannington's son, they said, when the bishop was being led to his death, he repeated over and over again, love your enemies, love your enemies, love your enemies, love your enemies. As he was being taken to being eaten, he was saying those words. It's amazing the power that is in those words. What makes it so impactful was the extent to which the Bishop Hannington was willing to show his love, isn't it? He was willing to die. He was willing to live out loving people whom he knew were going to kill him. He knew what they were going to do, yet he continued right to the very end to love those enemies. Where in the world do you get the internal fortitude to do something like that? Well, I think it's right here in our text today. Look with me at verse... We're going to start back a few verses in verse 14 in chapter 13. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples after he has washed their feet, which we covered last week. Jesus says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares his bread has lifted up his heel against me. 
I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. What you're about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Jesus had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to to buy something needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. The upper room begins with these words. The upper room, the whole discourse, these five chapters begin at verse 1 of chapter 13. And in that verse, it says that Jesus now wanted to show them the full extent of his love. I actually like the the translation of that that the NAS gives and the ESV gives. That is, he wanted to show them that he loved them to the very end. I like that translation a lot better because that's the theme of what Jesus is doing here in the upper room. The night before he was going to die, he was showing them in these five chapters how much he loved them all the way to the end. It's exactly what he's doing with Judas Iscariot in our text today, isn't it? He's doing what is perhaps most difficult for us. And that is loving your enemy. It's perhaps one of the most difficult things that we have to do, that God calls us to do. Jesus was showing that by loving Judas to the very end. Jesus had just washed the disciples' feet as we as I just mentioned a moment ago, and he was setting them an example of humble service, humble, loving service. And he tells them, you'll be blessed if you follow in my footsteps. But then he breaks in right there, and it's it's almost like a non sequitur in verse 18 where he says, okay, you'll be blessed if you do these things, but not every one of you is going to be blessed. See, Judas, uh, Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. He knew that. We see evidence of this throughout the Gospels. You can go look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in John, we see this too. Jesus knew all along that Judas was the betrayer. 
go back to chapter 6 and in uh, John, you can go there if you like, at the, in verse 71, he says, after feeding the 5,000, this is the, that whole discourse of uh, feeding the 5,000, teaching on the bread of life. That was a wonderful, wonderful sermon that Garrett Susie brought, wasn't it, on the bread of life? I had an opportunity to go listen to it this week. I mean, just wonderful. All we need is Jesus. He brings us to the end so that we can see that. But in this teaching, many t- disciples decide to leave Jesus because it's such a hard teaching. It is a hard teaching that Herod gave. It's a hard teaching that Jesus leaves us with. And he's left there with the twelve, and, and Jesus confer- uh, kind of encourages them and confirms them by saying, Listen, I've chosen you too. But then he goes on to say, But one of you is the devil. He's saying, One of you is my enemy. He knew that all along. This doesn't come as a surprise to Jesus. And I want us to sit back and consider for a moment today. Even though he chooses Judas, knowing that he would betray him, I want us to consider how loving Jesus was towards Judas. He loved his enemy fully, head and heart unreservedly when he knew this person was going to betray him to his death. Look at verse 18 with me. You begin to see this. It begins to develop right here. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those who I've chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I think what Jesus is showing Judas here is that he loved him by what he said. He was saying he loved him by quoting the Old Testament. This is a quote from uh, Psalm 41, 41, 41.9. And David is writing about a common theme in his life. If you read the Psalms for any period of time, you realize that David really had a lot of enemies. I mean, when you're king... When you're a leader, you will just have enemies. It comes with the territory. Leader just naturally breeds people who don't like them, who don't like the decisions they make, who don't like the the way they lead, their style of leadership, the direction that they're going in. And we have no real idea who David is referring to here. But in verse 9, the full verse that he's quoting says this, even, David is saying, even my close friend whom I trusted, who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. David is lamenting the fact that one of his closest friends, one of his dear brothers, has betrayed him. Now, we don't know who he meant here, but... There's a couple that we have detailed out in Scripture. And many people believe that, that the person he's referring to here is Ahithophel. Ahithophel is found in 2 Samuel chapters 15, 16, 17. It's all around Absalom's rebellion. His son, David's son, Absalom, usurps the throne, kicks David out, and pursues David. He wants to be king all by himself. And what David finds out is that his dear, close friend, 
the prophet who has been with him for so many years had actually counseled Absalom on how to depose him. Could you imagine the pain and the hurt that David is feeling here? That's what he's expressing in this verse, in the Psalms. Even my close friend, my trusted brother, whom I love, whom I've shared bread with, has betrayed me. Here David is mourning the fact that the person he shared his love with is now his enemy. And Jesus quotes this psalm not only to point out that there's a fulfillment of prophecy here. That is certainly at the forefront. You know, Psalm 41.9 is a, is a pro- prophetic verse speaking to the great betrayer to come. It's certainly pointing that out. But it also shows that Jesus really loved Judas, doesn't it? The full verse, the one whom I've chosen, my best friend, my closest friend, the one whom I've shared bread with, betrayed me. Jesus is saying in this Old Testament quote, not only that there's a betrayer in our midst, but like David, I love this person. And Judas was hearing that. My close friend. He's saying to Judas, you are my close friend. I trust you. I actually trust you. I'm not withholding anything from you. You know, you and I, when we think that there's somebody not to be trusted, what do we do? We pull back. We're not going to expose ourselves, right? We're good at that. Bring the troops back. He's saying, I'm still trusting you. I'm still open. Jesus is saying, Judas, even though you have this plan to betray me, fully sculpted, I still love you. That's amazing. But the text also shows that these weren't just words. Look with me at verse 21. Jesus didn't say that he loved Judas. This was actually how he felt in his heart. Verse 21 says, After he had said these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit. Troubled in spirit. You know, anybody can say, I love you. Anybody. Your enemy can tell you, I love you. But the heart isn't there. What, what scripture wants us to see here is that Jesus' heart was true to his words. Jesus was troubled by what Judas was going to do. Jesus was all broken up. Jesus was devastated by what Judas was going to do. The same word here, troubled in spirit, is the same word that is used a couple chapters previous when when talking about Lazarus' death. When Jesus went and he was deeply troubled, remember? Seeing the mourning, seeing, knowing that Lazarus is in the tomb, it says Jesus was deeply troubled. You know, it leads to his weeping. 
Jesus was devastated because he loved Lazarus and he was dead. Jesus was equally as devastated at a heart level that Judas was going to betray him. He hadn't pulled back the troops and protected himself. His heart was speaking when he said, I love you. Jesus is showing here his heart that he really actually loves the person that was planning to betray him to death. He does not, in other words, Jesus is showing us, he does not act towards his enemies like we do. I mean, what do we do when we know there's a person that doesn't like us? Maybe just take a moment, and maybe in your history, but if it's even more helpful, and it probably would be to think of somebody that maybe doesn't like you right now. How do we act towards those people? I think that there's three general ways that we act towards people that are, are quote, enemies. One is dismissively. We act very dismissively towards them. In other words, we cast this person outside of our orbit. We dismiss them. You know, I, I think I've told you this story before in my past. That's kind of my pattern. You know, if somebody doesn't like me or I know that they're, they're out to get me, so to speak, I mean, yeah, I just kind of very deftly put them out of my orbit and I don't have to deal with them anymore. You know, that story about when I was 10 or 11 of my best friend at that time, Paul, he left me up in a tree. Remember, I think I told you this, a tree, we put a ladder on a tree because the branches were too high to get to and I climbed up first and then he took the ladder down. Ha, 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 funny, funny, funny. But then he went home. And I just excised him out of my life. And that's what we do, don't we? Don't like me? Don't have to deal with it. We act dismissively towards our enemies. We also act defensively, don't we? We build the fortifications. Right? That's what I was saying before. We call the troops back and we build the defenses. Boy, we're good at that, aren't we? This person isn't going to hurt me. And however you build your defenses. And we also, thirdly, we not only act dismissively and defensively, we act vindictively sometimes too, don't we? Revenge. You're going to gossip about me? You're going to slander me? <laughs> Bring it on, Right? I can, what do we say? I can give, what do we say? I can give as good as I get. That's how we do it. Now, Jesus doesn't act like any of this. He doesn't harden his heart. What we see here by him being deeply troubled, being heart devastated, is that he is soul sad over Jesus' choice to reject him. I think what we see here is the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus. I think every once in a while we're given glimpses into the heart of God, aren't we? In Scripture, some, sometimes God just opens it up and says, here's my heart. You want to see what I re- how I really feel? Here it is. 
I think one of those is in 2 Peter 3.9. In 2 Peter 3.9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some see slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the heart of God. Yes, the doctrine of election is true. Yes. You know, your ch- God knows all. He chose you. But you want to know his heart? He, his heart is everybody. And you know why these last 2,000 years he's been waiting and waiting? It's because of his heart. He truly wants His heart's desire, if we can talk in these terms that are so rigid, his heart's desire is for everybody. And he's waiting. He's waiting. A lot of Christians say, why did 2,000 years is too long? Come on. Come on. Come back. You know why he isn't coming back? 2 Peter 3, 9. He loves the world. And he's giving people opportunity to come to him. He wants people to repent. He has a heart for people to be in relationship with him. He wants people to feel and know the freedom of forgiveness. His patient in not returning these past 2,000 years is driven by his heart of love for people like Judas that still reject him. Isn't that beautiful? Have you ever pondered that? That's unbelievably beautiful. And the heart of love is shown here with Judas Iscariot. Jesus is troubled. He's devastated over what Judas is going to do. And he's told him that he loves him. And now... He shows him that he loves him. I want us to recall the context of what we're doing here in the upper room. Jesus has just washed the 12 disciples' feet, a very loving, vulnerable act. And there's no hint anywhere in Scripture, in any of the Gospels, that Jesus treated Judas any differently when he got to his feet. He didn't treat Judas any differently. He washed Judas' feet. He never let on that Judas was anything but beloved to him. Isn't that amazing? I mean, even look at the interchange here in verse 21 and following. After he said this, he was deeply troubled. There's his heart and spirit and testified. I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another. They they had no idea. His disciples stared at each other at a loss to know which one of them. And then, you know, Peter motions to John, the the beloved one. John leans back against Jesus and and says, Jesus, who who is it? Because we have no clue. Think about this for a minute. The 12 of them lived life together for three plus years. And Jesus never gave a slight clue that there was something a little different about Judas. That's amazing. 
That's absolutely staggering. Jesus loved them all so clearly, so comprehensively, so equally, that there was no reason for the disciples to make the connection. So unlike us, <laughs> right? So unlike us. We give little indicators all the time that people are on the outs with us, don't we? You know what I'm talking about. You've had people in your life that either you didn't care for too much. We don't want to say enemies, but we should. Or that people that don't like us. And what do we do? We leave little bitter breadcrumb trails, don't we? Let me show the people around me who this person is. What do we do? A little eyebrow raising, a perfectly placed sigh, a very slight eye roll when that person is around, maybe a little change of voice when you're talking to that person. I know maybe you've been the recipient of that type of treatment, those little bitter breadcrumbs. And maybe you're like me. Maybe you've sprinkled them yourself. Why do we do this? We want to give that person a clue, don't we? We want that person to follow the bitter breadcrumbs and know that either you know how they feel or you want them to know how you feel. We want those around us to follow those bitter breadcrumbs, don't we? Oh, why, why is Blake, why did, why did he roll his eyes when he was talking to Aaron? Oh, oh, that was interesting. We want people to pick up on it, don't we? We want others to know who our enemies are. And the staggering thing is that the disciples who lived with him had no idea. He loved Judas. And he shows him right here. He loved him to the bitter end. Look at verse 26 with me. After John leans back and asks who it is, Jesus says, It is the one whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the piece of the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. This gesture serves really two purposes in the text. One is obvious. It's really pointing the finger, so to speak, at Judas. Here it is. It, it's, it's hours before I die. It's been three plus years. The plan is hatched. Here's who it is. But secondly, in the Middle Eastern culture, when you dip bread and you give it to a person... That is a gesture of friendship and love 
in loyalty. Isn't that amazing? The very indicator that he used to point out Judas is at the same time a gesture of love towards Judas Iscariot. That's, that's astounding, isn't it? Here is Judas, uh, Jesus offering friendship until the very end. F.F. Bruce makes a comment and he says, by singling G- Judas out for this mark of special favor may have been intended as a final appeal to Judas to abandon his treacherous plan. I think that's right on. It's very interesting that in the text, right after Judas takes it, that's when scripture says the die is cast, isn't it? Satan entered him. And then then John, in his wonderfully symbolic way, I mean, that's just how John thought. He said at the end, and it was night. Judas goes, leaves the light of the world and goes out into night. Jesus was offering Judas an opportunity until the very end. Jesus was loving his enemy, John 13, 1, to the full extent, to the very end. So the question still remains, Blake, how do we love our enemies? Great, we see Jesus' example. How do we love our enemies? How do we become more like Jesus? How does our heart change and not just our words and attitude? Because you and I, as we live out this Christian life, if you live out the Christian life, you'll have enemies. It may not be ones that want to eat you, like Bishop Hannington, but there will be ones who want to betray you. At work, some people will do almost anything to get ahead. If you spend any time in a corporate environment, or maybe not even corporate, any time in an environment, you know, it's, it's your fingers get stepped on by the person who wants to get ahead of you on the ladder. Kids at school, there's going to be times when you're BFF, your best friend forever, unexpectedly turns on you. Why? Well, maybe a boy likes you and your best friend is angry at that. So she turns on you. Maybe you make the football team and you replace your friend. So he turns on you. You get the singing part that your friend thought they deserved. And they don't like that. You get the solo your friend wanted. You get into the college of your choice and your friend doesn't. And things change in your relationship. Yes, even in churches, even in Christ's body, there'll be enemies. I have a dear friend who's a pastor who was pastoring a growing church, and he had to bring on an associate pastor. And he brought this person on, and the church was doing well, but then things started to change. His congregation started turning on him, and long story short, this assistant pastor started building a coalition to oust this, the head pastor so that he could be pastor of that church. 
There may be those who simply do not like you for your political leanings, for your, for your social leanings on homosexuality or transgender or abortion. There may be people who are jealous of you just because they look at your life and they go, I wanted that life. And I don't have that life. Thus they're jealous. Point is, you will have enemies in the broad sense of the word. And when you do, how will you actually love them as Jesus loved Judas? How do you do this at a heart level? And here's the foolish answer. It's through the foolishness of the cross. It's, it's, it's by the gospel that you learn to love your enemies at a heart level. You see, we all start out as Judases. Did you hear that? We all start out as Judases. Romans 5.8 tells us that God's demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet Judases, Jesus loved us and died for us. While we were yet sinners, while you were yet in rebellion against God, while you were yet saying, not your way, my way, Jesus died for you. While you were still saying, I like Jesus until he starts asking me to do something I don't want to do. He died for you. You know, until Jesus asks me to change something that I really believe in, I like Jesus until then. While we were yet sinners. First step in loving our enemies is realizing that you and I are Judas Iscariots. That you're not a recipient but a perpetrator. That you are dismissive. That you are defensive. That you are vindictive. That I am those same things. That you leave plenty of bitter breadcrumbs around for people to follow. That you are in desperate need of forgiveness. You see, until you realize that you are a sinner in desperate need of Christ's forgiveness, you'll never be able to forgive somebody. You'll never be able to love. You'll never be able to do it, guys. You'll be able to say it. Maybe you'll be able to serve some people in some nice ways, but your heart will be bitter. You will not be brokenhearted. You'll be a lot like Mike Love of the Beach Boys. In an interview last year with Rolling Stone magazine, Love was asked what he would say to his cousin and former bandmate, Brian Wilson, whom he has had a bitter and strained relationship with for decades. Mike Love, who had been a big proponent of, of meditation, transcendental meditation, he'd been doing it for 49 years at that point. He put it this way when he responded. He said, I'd probably say, I love you. Then the author said, moisture gathered in the corner of his eyes. And he went on to say, I love what we did together. 
Let's do it again. But then he gives his head a shake and his eyes narrowed, frowns. And once again, his voice gives voice to what no amount of meditation can cope with. He said, I've been ostracized, vilified. He couldn't go on. See, until you realize that you're like Judas, you'll never see the need for Jesus. Until you realize that you're in need of forgiveness, you'll never look at the cross and say, I need that. I need that. Because that's the essence of the gospel. Jesus came to do what you could not. Live a totally bitter free life, even towards Judas Iscariot. Jesus took the punishment that we deserved, death on a cross. And Jesus is offering what we need, and that need is forgiveness. That need is acceptance of God, friendship with God. You see, it's actually very simple. At the cross, Jesus dips a piece of bread in a bowl, and he holds it out to you. And he says, are you going to take it? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Spirit, it's your power that will make it effective in our lives. Do that, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.